Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my academic background at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Prakash Shah of the Department of Law at Queen Mary University of London in London, UK, on this fascinating publication called Western Foundations of the Caste System. Prakash, hello and welcome. It's a delight having you here. Oh, hello, uh, Raj. Thank you very much for your invitation, and it's a delight for me to be talking with you as well. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, maybe what you teach and all that? Uh, yes, my, my background, I suppose, uh, for present purposes, you could say is uh, as an academic lawyer. I started uh, really my research career as a scholar of migration law, and in particular, the law of uh, refugees. But uh, gradually, I also got interested in uh, discussing and researching questions about ethnic minorities and law and cultural diversity and law. And so increasingly, I began to be interested in the question of religion. And in the meantime, I also developed a kind of um, interest in comparative, broader, broader questions of comparative law. So looking at the laws of Asia, in particular South Asia. And I had studied under the now retired leading specialist of South Asian law, uh, Werner Mensky at the School of Oriental and African Studies, who also happened to be my PhD supervisor. So I, by osmosis, learned a lot uh, from him about uh, the specifics of the legal systems of South Asia and also the implications of having a uh, quite large uh, South Asian diaspora in particular in the United Kingdom. So, and, and so that, that was really my entry point into looking at questions of uh, law in connection with uh, South Asian groups in particular, uh, which, which provides a kind of law to being interested in caste, which is what the book is about. So perhaps maybe tell us, uh, you make mention in your introduction, but tell us about the genesis then of the book. Oh, well, the book actually also has a, has a, a slightly different path or, or a trajectory, because while I've been looking at questions of uh, religion, and in particular religion and law, uh, I became interested in the work of uh, Professor S.N. Malagangadara, who teaches at the University of Ghent in Belgium. And uh, he has done some very fundamental and interesting work uh, regarding the uh, image of India in, uh, let's say, the study of India or the you know India studies, and how that has fundamentally been influenced by uh, the image that uh, Europeans have constructed about India, uh, and in fact, we still largely uh, appear to be within that uh, framework or, or research paradigm, if you like, that much of what we think we know about. India is really an inheritance of the production of uh, kind of, uh, let's say, social sciences, but which has a backdrop of Orientalism, which itself has a backdrop of Christianity. Uh, So so there are sort of basic constituent elements which have gone into the formulation of 
India as a subject of study, which uh, depends on, uh, let's say, in in the very deep background, Christian presuppositions. So that's very much the case. Um, so as our listeners may know, I am actually uh, from the discipline of Hindu studies proper in that um, my doctorate, my discipline is religion, and my, 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 my PhD work was in Hinduism proper. I studied mythologies of the Hindu goddess and so much of really every crevice of the study of India is touched by Orientalist scholarly presuppositions and caricatures of India. And that's prevalent to this day, even, um, even among practitioners who have now a self-understanding of Hinduism, which was um, ultimately minted in colonial India. Yes. And in connection more specifically with the book in question, uh, we see that uh, also uh, affecting in a very basic way uh, the study of caste uh, and the whole discipline of caste studies, if there is such a thing. <laughs> uh, of course, it ranges across various sub-disciplines within social sciences and humanities, is also fundamentally constituted by uh, a framework which comes out of the Christian backdrop of Europe. And, and its approach to the study of India. And this is one of the things that we try to tackle in the book in various ways. And the title is, of course, a giveaway because uh, it basically tells you <laughs> that the foundations of the caste system are Western. So it's obviously a, both a telling and nevertheless a provocative title. And so why don't you, I'm sure many, if not all of our our listeners will have heard of the caste system and may have some notions of the caste system that says, seems to be as pervasive as it has been problematic in terms of our understanding of it. Um, why don't you say a little bit about, okay, well, what is the caste system? And then what is the, uh, well, obviously drill down into it deeper, but what is the main thrust position theme of the book regarding caste system? Yes. So first of all, I suppose we, we have to conjure up what kind of image the caste system, or, or we, we, have, we have to sort of just kind of outline what kind of image the, uh, the idea of the caste system conjures up in popular and also academic imagination. Uh, and that uh, goes something as follows. It is a kind of an oppressive structure which is specific to uh, India, or sometimes some scholars would say more broadly South Asia, and it, it is a pan-Indian or South Asian uh, phenomenon, a structure. It's, uh, others would say, well, of course, there, there, there is a hierarchical dimension of it, which lends uh, a certain amount of specificity to the kind of oppressive structure it is. Uh, so that's a basic image we have of the caste system. And some others, other people would add on things such as, uh, you know, it's characterized by endogamy and uh, it's, it has a fundamental root in the religion of Hinduism etc etc so that's the basic kind of idea that we have of it um, now uh, our argument based on the research program of SN Balagangadhar is that caste the caste system is an entity in experience or an experiential entity which is specific to the European experience of India so we say that in social reality, uh, there is no such thing as caste system. The caste system exists as an, as an entity which is experienced as Europeans have gone about in India and given shape to their experience of India. So are you, just to clarify, are you arguing in this book that the caste system does not exist in and of itself and it's entirely a function of the perspective of scholars? Yes. 
That's that's what we argue. Yeah. So when we say construction of the cost system, of course, there's there's an, a little bit of ambiguity which needs to be clarified uh, because there are scholars. You know, there's a leading scholar of uh, of cost, Nicholas Dirks in California. He has argued that uh, well, actually, if you look at the patterns of social organization uh, in India as he studied it. Uh, in the past, in the pre-colonial past, uh, you will see a diversity of uh, forms of social structures and, you know, terminologies. And it's impossible to say that there was a kind of unified caste system in India. But then he goes on to say that as a consequence of the machinations of the colonial state, the British colonial state in India, although there existed no caste system prior to colonial intervention, after colonial intervention, or during and after colonial intervention, uh, a caste system actually came into place. Now, that's a version of a constructionist argument, right? Because that would have us believe that the agency of the colonial state was such as to be able to uh, institute a form of social organization which hadn't been present earlier in India. Uh, We don't take that perspective. We say that construction, as we use it, is construction at the ideational level. So the construction takes place at the level of giving shape to, as I said, the experience of people from a particular culture and their experience of another culture and society. So it exists only, if you like, pretty much as we argue Hinduism exists in Western universities. Uh, But there is no sort of existential equivalent of that in social reality. So when we have, for example, and, and I'm not taking a position, obviously, in this interview. My my role, uh, my goal is simply just to drill down and derive an, an understanding of this work in hopefully an interesting way to our, to our listeners. Uh, but here's a question. So when we encounter um, various references throughout various epochs of Hinduism to words such as Varana or Jati, or these, what we think of forecasts of the Brahmana, the, the, the priestly scholars, the Kshatriya, the warrior administrators, the Vaishyas, the merchants and artisans, and the Shudras, the, the, those who serve the rest. When we encounter these references, then in the uh, Sanskrit literature itself, what, how would you reconcile that with your position? Of course, we can't deny that these terms exist in the vast literature, uh, you know, the vast literary corpus of uh, of the India of the past. The, that's the, those terms are there. Uh, this, the, then I suppose we have to move to the problem of what do they mean, right? When what does varna mean? What does jati mean? If you look at a term like jati, actually, uh, and we say so in the book, we say that uh, what jati stands for is actually a very difficult thing to a uh, difficult question to answer but what has happened in the period since the colonial times in particular is that uh, jati seems to have been read as a a constituent element of what the British and other Europeans described as the caste system of India. And we say that that actually is is a manifestation of a certain tendency that has taken root, particularly again since the colonial period, but it goes further back than that, where elements that don't necessarily belong in a single structure in the life of India uh, have been brought together by a certain exercise of, if you like, construction or restructuring. Uh, in the imagination of uh, Europe 
and the West more broadly. Uh, so jati becomes a, a component of the caste system only by putting it into a larger structure, you know, which which has the kind of characteristics that I mentioned earlier, sort of oppression, uh, hierarchy, endogamy. Uh, many many would say it's also an outcome of the Hindu religion, etc., etc. So the and and so one of the fundamental problems is that how does that construction occur? How did that construction occur? And so we have various authors in the book actually trying to unpack that for us and to show us that the way in which these things were put together, including the ideas of Jati and Varna, are themselves a function of questions that Europe asked given its own Christian background. All right. So before we dig into the specific uh, chapters and their contributions, just to clarify uh, for our listeners that you take the position that caste itself as we know it, uh, a social organizing hierarchy that may probably had a dimension, that most probably had a dimension of, of privilege um, and or uh, oppression, that that system wasn't walking on the ground in India, so to speak, but that system is a construct of Europe's understanding of India, correct? Yes, um, because we, see, we haven't, for the last 200 or so years since the caste system has been spoken of, nobody has shown how a system such as the caste system could come about, right? And these were actually live questions. In the middle of the 19th century, these were live questions. And there, were, there were discussions in British journals during that time when people would say, well, how is it possible that a, you know, this, the putative priestly class made up of Brahmins could institute a pan-Indian system in an age uh, where obviously modern, you know, the kind of communications and transport that we have today who did not exist, uh, a centralized state authority did not exist, and so on and so forth. So, no, and nobody has really, you see, those, those questions about how such a system, putative, putative system, could have come into place have simply gone into the background. Nobody, nobody has answered them, uh, but at the same time, the figure of the caste system seems to have taken the level of a kind of presuppositional idea, the existence of which does not seem to need establishing or proving or ev evidencing, but it exists at, at the level of presupposition, or if, if you want to use a different term, at a pre-theoretical level. So all theory-making about India and caste presupposes the existence of the caste system today. Uh, but we've never proved it. We've never empirically shown that here is a system which, you know, <laughs> which takes the, the, the shape for which various contentions are made that belong to it. Okay, so, so this, this obviously is fascinating and, and, and quite provocative in that um, I think it's fair to say the vast majority of even scholars on India would regard the caste system as perhaps fraught with um, misrepresentation, misunderstanding, and needing nuance, but nevertheless an entity on the ground. But as I say, it's not its not my role to take a position. It's my role to ask some interesting questions and, and get at the heart of what the position of the work is. But before going to the specific chapter, I have one question that I'd be, I'd be interested to, to understand how you square away. If, um, say you have notions of various groups who don't eat with each other, for example, because of reasons of uh, purity and pollution um, that we would typically ascribe 
to being a function of caste system, that sort of behavior, how might you square that away? I, I'm sorry, you, uh, your final part of your question was how much? How might you square away the fact that, for example, some groups would not eat with other groups because of this idea of lesser than or, or purity and pollution? Where would that fit into your understanding of caste as being a, a pure construct? Yes, uh, well, th- that's uh, that's a, a good question, an inevitable one, and, and in fact connects with your earlier dis- uh, sort of uh, mention of uh, uh, the, the large consensus, consensus that exists in the study of India uh, about the existence of the caste system. I think you're completely right, actually, if we take the question from that end, that most scholars would uh, be shocked to learn that, <laughs> that a group of fellow scholars or a small group of fellow scholars is, are, is trying to say that, well, no such thing has ever existed, or its that, existence has never been proved. And that's precisely... Uh, that's precisely yeah. why this this is uh, such a great book for this interview. But please proceed. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so it's, hence, hence the sort of relevance of your question. So, so one of the things that we would say is that you know, for for very, for any number of reasons, let's say purity and pollution reasons, uh, that people may not uh, sit down together and eat with each other. Uh, let's even bring in uh, various other indices uh, which are taken to be. Uh, manifestations of the caste system, uh, some kind of uh, oppression between groups, some kind of conflict between groups, some kind of uh, violent activities or incidents, etc., etc. You know, you can take any number of these things and say, well, surely aren't they manifestations? Don't they? Aren't they evidences for the existence of the caste system? Well, see, my answer to that would be more or less exactly the same as what I said for uh, the problem of jati. The fact that something like jati exists does not a caste system make. The fact that maybe, let's say, food taboos or food rules about commensality and so on may exist in the society does not a caste system make, right? Uh, so what you need is some kind of uh, uh, unifying entity at a presuppositional level to bring all these things together and make them testify to the existence of a caste system. But the problem here is that we're working in reverse. We, what, what, what we have is the figment of the caste system first, which then unifies our experience of all of these things. And the fundamental question for us is where does that, where does that notion of the caste system emerge from? Right? Where does it come from? What is its origin? That's the real problem that we need to really tackle in order to understand why is it that we've gone gone along for the last 200 years arguing in this particular way. That what we've done, you know, in, in there's this Latin phrase, petitio principi. So what we say is that uh, what has to be proven has actually been presupposed, you know, and we've gone along in that way for the last 200 years. And so, so regarding your question, um, oh, Regarding your question of origins, um, unless you think there's another chapter you'd like to start digging into, take, for example, uh, chapter 7 on the Aryans and the ancient caste systems, the ancient system of caste. Um, how about this notion of the caste system just being integral to um, Aryan culture of the ancient Vedic people, um, evidenced, for example, in the, the Purusha Sutta, the great hymn where the primordial person was sacrificed and the various parts of him became various castes, his head 
represented the brahmanas his his arms were the the warriors the kshatriyas um uh, his thighs were the vaishyas and his feet the shudras the the servant uh class so for example do you want to in terms of origins do you want to dig into that article perhaps Ah uh, yeah sure um well you 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 have various sub questions within that larger question uh so we can talk about the problem of the aryan presence or you know the 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 uh, putative either invasion or migration depending on the preference of particular scholar um so uh now that chapter by Marian Kapens is actually extremely fascinating I mean for me it was a real eye opener as well um because she she argues doesn't she that the uh for for the Aryan invasion theory to make sense you need the trope of the caste system in place right she more or less argues that or they that they run concurrently that they do, one doesn't make sense without the other and of course there's a big debate currently about whether or not there was an aryan invasion and so on but she gives a very important i think inflection to that debate because what she says is that first of all the presupposition about the existence of an indian caste system or a hindu caste system was already there in the scholarship now along the way of course you had this thing about uh you know the peopling of the world the, the biblical story about the people peopling of the world and so on uh so the two get intertwined and then for india and india's population um because we have the caste system story in place already um there are various speculations by orientalist scholars about how the peopling of india would have been done and given that the caste system had to be explained as well it got the it took the following shape that the aryans uh, were uh, an alien people who came to india dominated the pre-existing sets or groups of people and of course they're variously described and this is what actually lies at the base of the caste system as we as we think we know it as we've described it already or as previous scholars have described it um so the aryan invasion theory actually becomes an adjunct to the caste system story and supports the caste system story um now marian kepens actually does more than that what what she does is say well actually you know, the the concern among let's say anti caste scholars of today or even critical scholars uh, 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 uh sorry anti caste activists or critical scholars of today is not only with or not specifically with the ranking in the so assumed descendants of the aryans right so the three higher orders which they were supposed to have brought with them in their invasion enterprise right when when they came to india the concern is rather with the groups of people who were pre-existing who were already existing in the indian territory and they are the ones who if you like were the most oppressed and so the anti-caste activists and critical scholars actually take a position which sees that as the main cleavage right 
And so today, of course, we have great concern about uh, untouchables or Dalits, as we call them, so on and so forth. Scheduled castes, scheduled tribes in the contemporary legal uh, parlance. And all of those are supposed to be, if you like, uh, descendants of the originally occupied or invaded people. And so in a way, what she does, what Marion Kepens does, is to explain how it is that caste studies and India studies has had a particular preoccupation with these people right at the bottom of the ladder, if you like, right, or the scale or the hierarchical scale. And what she does, very interestingly, is manage to show how the Aryan invasion theory manages to be an adjunct to the caste system story and provides an explanation for why we think the way we do about uh, caste oppression and the groups which are most exposed to caste, uh, caste oppression. And what's interesting is that that story, in order to make sense of how we think about it today, we have to go back to the, contemporary, uh, the, the Orientalist background. And that's really interesting. And the Orientalist background is actually consists merely of speculation. It's, it's no more than that. There's no empirical work done by the, uh, by the Orientalists to show that there was an Aryan invasion. It's entire speculation, which today has assumed the status of fact in social science theory making about India. So it's tremendous. And, and actually, you, one can say that not just for the Aryan invasion part of the caste system story, one can say that for virtually any angle that you take with respect to the study of caste. So um, regarding the Aryan invasion theory, uh, you must have come across um, the recanting of that theory and, and the putting forth of the Aryan migration uh, theory. Have you come across this, or does this factor into your thinking on caste? Uh, yes, I, I, I can't say I've done any particular work on it, but I, I, uh, if one reads uh, Marion uh, Kepler's chapter, she actually talks about the, 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 if you like, the more nuanced version of the invasion theory, which is the sort of gradual uh, uh, My, migration. migration in various stages of groups of people from outside India into India. Uh, so that becomes a kind of soft version, if you like, of the... Uh, of of the Aryan uh, incursion <laughs> theories, um, mm. but its effect is the same. I mean, it's, it's simply a modulation and a way of uh, mitigating, if you like, the worst uh, worst pitfalls of the invasion theorists, um, and to introduce a kind of softer one. But the effect is much the same for for with respect to our concern with the caste system. I think. All right. So let's let's take a look at one of the other six articles. We can do them really in any order. But while we're talking about ancient India, how about how about Martin uh, Farrakh's article on uh, Shramanas and Bhakti movement? Yes, uh, another fascinating chapter. Um, and okay, I mean in that that article has has various dimensions to it as well, various layers to it. But I, I think we can say that Martin Farrakh's uh, one of his main concerns is to point out that there is a kind of unifying anti-caste hypothesis um, which characterizes our general understanding of um, all non-Hindu movements or many non-Hindu movements uh, right down from Buddhism, Jainism, right up to uh, the so-called Bhakti movements. Right, and they're all viewed in the general literature as 
uh, anti-caste movements and having a kind of egalitarian ethos and ethical ethical basis. Um, and he critiques that. He says that, well, actually, if you look at the uh, writing, the contemporary, contemporaneous writing, which, let's say, the Buddhists produce, or more recently, the Bhakti, um, uh, the, 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 the actors within the Bhakti tradition have produced, um, you don't find an anti-caste or an egalitarian em- emphasis or ethos. What you find, in fact, is that these, let's, let's call them schools or traditions, produce um, uh, their own uh, uh, elucidations of, let's say, w- the question, what, what does it mean to be a Brahman, Right. Uh, so they don't discard or reject the idea of, uh, of uh, Brahmins because they are supposed to be representing, if you like, the top of a kind of oppressive cult structure. Right? Rather, what they do is take a hand in reformulating or reconstituting um, in theoretical terms what uh, it takes to be a Brahmin, right? Um, which is still considered to be a kind of category or position which. Uh, which is a kind of, you know, an, a, a, a kind of exemplary uh, actor within society or position within society. So what you would say, or rather what, what Martin Freck would be saying is that the ancient Shramana, the renouncer movements, these ancient renouncers were more critiquing the specific function and duties of the Brahmins versus um, a hegemonic hierarchy uh, in which the Brahmins were ensconced. As as Martin Farik has it, it's actually difficult to even go that far because it's difficult to know what specific practices that were being performed by uh, contemporaneous Brahmins uh, were the objects of critique. It's quite, it's pretty difficult to know. Um, but uh, it, what, what's, what seems to be clearer is that um, there are certain preconditions. The, the discussion seems to be revolve very much around what does it take to be a Brahmin? What makes a Brahmin, right? Um, so if you like, um, the discussion centers on the essential qualities of what a Brahmin is or who a Brahmin is. And so, 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 and you know, various actors, thinkers of the time, the intellectuals of the time, are actually engaging in some kind of debate on that question, right? Rather than rejecting the 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 the, the position or post of a Brahmin. Uh, of course, it begs the question, you know, how how is how is a Bra- a Brahminhood to be understood, you know? Uh, in the past of India, and that's a huge question, actually. Um, so, partly, actually, Martin Farrick makes a quite interesting contribution to that larger debate right? mm-hmm. of, of how the Indian traditions have conceptualized of what Brahminhood consists of. Right, which is obviously an ongoing question. Mm. There's this. There is this. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it is. Um, from some of the inscriptions of uh, Ashoka regarding the regarding the distinction between Shramana and Brahmana, that they are opposed and they they are sort of like uh, cat and dog. <laughs> they're opposed. Uh, um, uh, they, they contrast each other. 
And so the question then becomes, is that the question then becomes in your context, is that because of a rejection or, or an inscription to a, a caste system, or is that just in the redefinition of the Ramana um, through the form of the Shramana? So that's obviously a, an interesting position. Um, how about, I mean, we can, we can look at them in any order, but how about we take a look at um, this also equally, if not more so fascinating article about um, the Jews and the, immort- and the immorality of the caste system. Yes, uh, Jacob Deruva's chapter, yes. Correct. Um, so uh, Jacob Deruva has, uh, prior to writing this chapter, had already done very interesting work about how the Reformation polemic uh, by the Protestants of the uh, Catholic Church uh, fed into the um, formulation of the idea of the caste system in India, right? Uh, so by, by the, certainly by the middle of the 19th century, you had quite a solidly um, formulated idea of the Indian or Hindu caste system. Uh, but uh, Jacob had argued, Jacob Deruva had argued that um, one of the things it took to make uh, that kind of formulation is the background of the Reformation debates that were already going on in Europe for a number of centuries by then, right? Uh, so, for example, the corrupt priesthood trope, right? The corrupt priesthood trope is one that was initially leveled by Protestants against uh, the Catholic Church, right? It was, in fact, the basis of the whole Reform- Reformation argument against the Church. Um, and it's, so it's this kind of polemic which then gets transplanted into India uh, and provides a way of Europeans understanding uh, their experience of India and the various groups that they were encountering. So the Brahmins then, you know, quite naturally seem to assume the role of priests, right? But the notion of the priest is actually <laughs> completely absent in India. It's, it's actually a European Christian notion, uh, which get, then gets read into India as a way of Europeans trying to grapple with uh, their experience of, you know, what they were seeing in India. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, so, and they, they were not only priests, but they were priests who pervade certain false doctrines as if they were true doctrines, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting about the chapter that Jacob Deruva writes in this book is that he expands the discussion to Jews and the positions that, position that Jews acquired in post-Reformation European writing. Um, and one of the things he helps us to do is also understand some of the very specific dimensions which have been attributed to the caste system in India um, actually derive not necessarily from the Protestant polemic against the Catholic Church in Europe, but against the Protestant polemic of Jews and Judaism. That's, that's, a, that's a fundamental contribution, I think. And, and so ideas like... Uh, a priestly tribe, uh, uh, which the Brahmins came to be, was actually an analog of the uh, priestly tribes among Jews. Uh, notions of purity and pollution, which they were supposed to uh, uphold, um, uh, which the Jews, the, the, the priestly class was supposed to uphold, uh, actually, well, you know, they, you yourself mentioned the ideas of purity and pollution. 
the, it's, I think it's worth pursuing the, the, the question, to what extent do they depend on uh, discussions that were already going on in Europe and were then transplanted into a reading of, uh, of, of uh, 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 the caste system. And not just the reading of the caste system, in fact, uh, for the formulation of the caste system in India. Um, we also have ideas of excommunication, right? Uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a number of tropes which get generated in Protestant or post-Reformation Europe against Jews and Judaism, which are then used to, if you like, uh, go into the larger mix uh, in the formulation of the notion of the caste system in India. You know, so so one of the things that, uh, in fact, all these chapters are doing, Marion Kaplan's ch chapter, uh, Martin Farrick's chapter, and Jacob Deruva's chapter, is they flesh out in particular ways how different components of what we see as integral to the caste system today are actually a function of earlier Christian and Orientalist form formulations um, and how they then go into the reading of what was going on in India by Europeans. And that's right. really fascinating. Right. And that's, that's more or less why I sort of began with those three in terms of them yeah. being the historical foundation of sure. Of, of your thesis. Um, so before we move on to the other specifically, um, earlier you had described it, and also obviously in the book you describe it as uh, the Western foundations being uh, Christian. Uh, would you say that primarily is uh, based on Jacob de Rover's, uh chapter with these polemics against uh, Catholic priests and Jews, or is there another article that brings that to the fore? I think you see it throughout, actually, particularly in the chapters, the three chapters that we've discussed uh, so far, right? Uh, so if you look at the um, the idea of the peopling of the world, right, the, the biblical story of the peopling of the world, Marianne Kepens shows how that becomes so relevant to uh, understanding the role that the Aryan invasion thesis then later on plays, if you like, yeah? uh, because you need to have some kind of explanation of how India was peopled. Um, Martin Farrick's stuff is also relevant to this because in, in a part that we didn't yet discuss, which is um, uh, the notion of uh, endogamy and how it, one, one particular line of inquiry which he tries to introduce is that the notion of endogamy actually can, may potentially be traceable back to uh, uh, concerns about endogamy which were prevalent in uh, in Iberia, in the Iberian Peninsula, um, and fundamental to Catholic thought in its suspicion of whether or not converted populations had really converted and how far back you needed to go to be considered to be truly Christian. Uh, and some of that polemic or some of that discussion was actually transplanted into the Iberian uh, colonization project and was potentially also used to read data that the Europeans encountered in India. Uh, and so that's, you, you can see how that would, you know, also have a kind of very, uh, a base in Christian thinking about uh, a fundamental component of what's assumed to be today the caste system. 
Uh, and of course, Jacob de Ruva's paper, we discussed about the post-Reformation polemic. So in various ways, um, the backdrop of Christianity is actually fundamental because, in fact, in the larger research, research program, what we argue is that uh, Christianity is constitutive of the Western culture. Right? Uh, and so the whole dynamic of Western culture as a religious culture is dependent on Christianity. Uh, and so these are just various strands that go into fleshing out the you know particular aspects of what Europe uh, has done in in order to uh, you know uh, sort of give structure to its own experience of uh, India. I imagine that you would find little argument uh, among scholars related regarding Christianity being constitutive of, um, of of Western thought, even in a secular world. No, it's, the argument is uh, it's constitutive of Western culture, not just Western thought. Western culture, in a way, yeah, as a culture. Yes, and so I imagine that there would be much, um, there, there would be agreement on that point. Um, the, the question of whether or not that culture um, ended up authoring, uh, constructing uh, caste system is obviously the more intriguing and, and controversial uh, position of the book. We've looked at some of these ancient elements, such as the polemic against uh, Catholics and Catholic priests and Jews, uh, such as um, the Shreman and the Bhakti movement and the, the Aryan uh, migration uh, culture. Let's, let's look at some of the more um, uh, contemporary modern stuff. Do you want to maybe start with your article or another? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we, we, can do, we can do a broad brush uh, and, uh, across all of the three uh, remaining chapters. Sure. Uh, so what we have is a chapter by uh, S.M. Baladangadhar, who is, who is also the, the founder of the research program. Um, and he, in, in his particular chapter in this book, enters into a very interesting dimension of um, how social justice um, uh, concerns appear to be at the forefront of contemporary arguments as to why the uh, caste reservation system was introduced in post-independence India, right? Um, and what he does, one of the things he does is go back to the constituent assembly debates to show how uh, the individual uh, proponents of reservations had tried to justify it. And one of the things he shows is that, um, of course, the proponents of the reservation system were not uh, themselves, or not primarily themselves, Christian, right? So they they were not themselves coming out of Christian backgrounds. So the reason why that is important to to um, uh, to note or announce is that, and this is something that Balagangadhar also shows, is that social justice uh, comes about as an outcome of. Uh, Catholic social doctrine, which has been elaborated since the middle of the 19th century, right? So our contemporary so, uh, secularized ideas of social justice actually find their root also in Christian theological thinking, and in particular social, the Catholic social doctrine. Um, and so the, to connect, connect the two parts of the argument, uh, the fact that the uh, a leading spokespersons in the Indian Constituent Assembly who argued for reservations could not have had access to uh, Christian ideas uh, themselves uh, shows that uh, the, the claim that reservations are based on some kind of normative idea of 
social justice must be hollow, right? Uh, although there are, there, you know, it's been claimed claimed quite widely in in contemporary writing and thinking. Okay, moving on to <laughs> moving on to um, uh, the next chapter, which is uh, by uh, my colleagues Sufia Patan and Duncan Jalki, uh, who are working away in India in in Karnataka, and. Uh, this is, I, I would argue, this is a very fundamental chapter right? because one of the things they do is that uh, they show to us that the claim that the so-called lower costs or sc- scheduled costs in India suffer disproportionately from acts of violence or atrocities uh, cannot be uh, substantiated if one looks at the only set of av- available statistics there are in India, which is the national, national crime st- statistics. Um, and in fact, they, sh- they show the reverse, that uh, members of scheduled castes appear to be, appear to experience a lower level of violence than the rest of the population. Uh, my chapter talks about a a uh, recent uh, development in Britain where there has been an attempt to institute a law on caste discrimination or law against caste discrimination as part of the Equality Act of 2010 and how there's been a kind of, uh, I would say, a, a quite disingenuous attempt to insert such a provision um, and to ensure that it, it gets implemented. And one of the parallel tracks that that attempt took was to institute a strategic litigation in the British courts, um, which I, I would, uh, I also argue uh, is uh, sort of, you know, manifests the same kind of disingenuity that the attempt to insert the cost provision in the legislation does, uh, because I mean, for very, let, let me say, for various reasons, it's possible to argue that at this stage, we can go into it more deeply in due course. Uh, this is as good as time as any. We'll go a little more deeply into your article, and then it's the perfect opportunity to then zoom out and talk a little bit about your your uh, forward and your afterward and some, some larger questions. Um, well, in your position, why are these British? Why are they? Why are these British lawmakers being uh, disingenuous regarding um, these new laws against caste discrimination? Yeah, I mean, I, I, perhaps the, I, I, I don't want to sound too strong. I, I suppose the what I would say is the advocates of the caste legislation and the case law on caste. I, I would say that they have been disingenuous to a certain degree because. If one looks at the evidential base, let's say the uh, assertions that, you know, with the transplantation of, a, of an Indian or a South Asian diaspora in Britain, uh, the caste system would have also been transplanted and therefore, you know, consequence acts of, acts of discrimination and violence, atrocities and so on, uh, we would also be able to uh, witness them and so on, hasn't actually been proven. Uh, it's not as though studies have not been attempted. Now, the first set of studies which you'll find on the record are studies which have been produced by the uh, activists or advocacy organizations themselves, so the Dalit, Dalit organizations, which also have some kind of root now, rooting in uh, the British diaspora population. 
but if you look at their methodology, uh, it's very often or almost always revolves around uh, positing certain stories as though they constitute uh, irrefutable evidence of caste discrimination, right? Uh, without seeking alternative explanations, without seeking, uh, seeking um, uh, alternative accounts of how those uh, those same incidents or experiences could be explained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then you have a set of official studies. Uh, which unfortunately also take the same route, right? And they've been guided by the activist organizations. So I would say that despite the attempt to provide the impression that caste discrimination has become prevalent with the uh, uh, transplantation of an Indian or South Asian diaspora in Britain, um, once you dig deeper into the methodological problems that the studies have used, you you won't be able to say that there is empirical evidence for the presence of caste discrimination in Britain, right? Now, that hasn't stopped the legislators from initially saying that what we will do is to still have a provision on caste and make it an aspect of racial discrimination in the equality legislation, right? Um, and so if you look at the legislative debates, you find some very strange things. Now, some legislators were saying things to the effect that, well, even if there is one case of caste discrimination, I would be prepared to legislate. Uh, if you look at all the other sort of grounds of equality in the in the legislation, you know, they've accumulated over the years, like gender, race, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. They've always all been preceded by extensive studies, reports, research, and so on, which testify to the presence of discrimination uh, along, along the lines of those categories. So they've always been sort of very substantially proven or established problems before legislation took root. In, in the case of cost, the opposite has happened, right? That you've, you've already got in by 2010 a, a provision, legislative provision, but the attempt to study it uh, and to have official studies, uh, officially sponsored study on the, uh, studies on the problem take place after that. And even they don't, managed to show that there is empirically irrefutable evidence that caste discrimination is present. In fact, the, the study that the government itself commissioned in 2010 shows that what we would need is a much larger research program to establish the prevalence of caste discrimination to any degree. It's the study itself says so, you know. Uh, and despite of that, the legislators went ahead and sort of not only advocated the insertion of a cost provision, but made it mandatory. In 2013, there was an amendment in the British Parliament which said that um, the minister must institute or must implement the provision on cost discrimination, right? And that's, that, that was at a time knowing that the only official study um, had asked for a larger research program to investigate the problem. Right? They hadn't said that there's irrefutable evidence, and they hadn't, uh, neither had they said that there are clear grounds for legislating on this issue. Now, if you move to the case, uh, that's also interesting because that, that takes kind of parallel track. The legislation not having been implemented, uh, a test case was mounted. Um, and one of the interesting things is that the litigant in the case, uh, she was a household servant who had been, who had accompanied a family. 
uh, who you know originally from India, so she'd been engaged in India, worked with the family, and then the family moved to to England, and so she came with them. Uh, she claims to be a Bihari Christian Adivasi woman, right? And no doubt she is. Uh, and the case st- starts off as a problem, uh, as a case of underpayment. So there's a claim of underpayment of wages, etc. Right? Caste gets introduced later into the uh, pleadings. And in fact, the whole case comes through the hierarchy of the court system because of the caste point, right? Because the point has to be litigated as, as, as a preliminary one, whether or not in the absence of an effected caste provision in the Equality Act, can we still say that caste claims can be brought under the existing provisions of the Equality Act? Now, uh, the answer is in, in the affirmative. The courts give an, affirm, uh, uh, an affirmative yes and say that, well, given the existing provision on ethnicity, which already includes descent, we can read caste into it as well. So you've got no bar to bring caste, uh, caste claim, caste discrimination claims under the legislation already. Now, the facts of the case are really interesting. One of the things you see as you read the various judgments, um, both from the Employment Tribunal and also the Employment Appeal Tribunal, which is at the level of the High Court in England, nobody asks the specific caste or tribal background of the litigant. But that's, that's not interesting in itself. Nobody asks the caste background of the employers. Now, you'd have thought that if... Uh, there was a claim of caste discrimination being made, you at the very least need to know the caste background of both the plaintiff and the defendants, but you don't get that anywhere. Right? And one of my arguments has been, has been that actually what's happened again, you know, what we talked about earlier with respect to how you need to have a caste system story in place before you can put unrelated aspects or facts together as if they testify to the presence of a caste system or that the caste system comes to be an explanation for why those facts are the way they are. And so that's what you have in this case as well. That, that's basically my argument in the chapter, right? that you need to have the caste system story as a presupposition in order to find, find an explanation for why facts occur as they do. And even when the facts don't fit together, the caste system story actually supplies the, uh, the silent elements, if you like, right? the presuppositional elements. So despite a very weak evidential base, one might still say or read into a certain set of facts that they occurred as a result of caste system, which is, uh, sorry, caste discrimination, which is con- consequent to the caste system. Definitely a fascinating article. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> heavily summarized account <laughs> without any full stops. <laughs> Not a problem. That's, that's fascinating stuff. Let's, let's end with a broader question that um, the year afterward uh, is uh, fairly well organized in terms of subheadings that the reader will naturally have as questions. And you go from is there a caste system um, onto, well, you know why did the West? Why did the West see the caste system? I think we've more or less covered that. How about we end with this idea of well, why do why do Indians why do Indians buy into the story? Why do why do Indians see the caste system? That is a brilliant question, if I may say so, uh, because it is true. If you ask the average Indian, you know, something like, well, don't you have a caste system in India today? Almost hundred percent of the responses you get would be in the affirmative, wouldn't you? 
and hence the hence the importance of your question particularly in light of the claims that we make in the book right if we say that there is no caste system how comes all these indians go around saying uh well of course you know we have a caste system it's oppressive it's hierarchical etc etc um in fact within the uh, confines of the research program what we've been arguing uh through uh, malagangadhar's work is that there is a there is a way in which a colonized culture like india but it's not restricted to india has taken on stories which europeans have told about it and about the members of that culture as though they reflect the experiences of people within that culture right and we call that colonial consciousness and colonial consciousness takes root because the kind of stories that europeans have told since the colonial period uh have been forced through uh, some kind of system of education um but because they are not cognitively convincing right they're not uh, they're not necessarily they don't follow, follow logical rules etc etc so they defy the ordinary processes processes cognitive processes we've needed an additional element which is the element of violence so that's one of the constitutional elements of how uh or the explanatory factors of how colonial consciousness gets spread through a culture or colonized culture and so the caste system story and its widespread acceptance we would say is one of the facets of the ongoing colonial consciousness of the indian population this is uh obviously a fascinating uh topic in terms of the presence of caste the understandings of caste and even caste in practice now and the extent to which this ever was a pervasive uh indian practice and the extent to which it now is and the reasons uh the reasons for current practice whether they stem in a colonial consciousness or uh, an ancient indigenous tradition these are obviously very intriguing questions that point to the provocative uh nature of this work it has been great uh pleasure and intrigue to actually speak to you about this work uh for listeners once again i've been speaking with dr prakash shah who's a reader in culture and law at queen mary university of london in uh the united kingdom uh prakash it's been a pleasure speaking with you thanks very much for appearing on the hindu studies channel of the new books network thank you very much yourself for uh taking the initiative and the time uh to have this conversation <laughs> <It's very laughs> all right yeah take good care bye bye thank you bye bye